Alrighty, so we are going to bring our series through the Minor Prophets to a close this morning. So we've done each of these 12 books, one week per book, and so this is our 12th week through the series, and we're going to be looking at Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, um, this morning in one shot. So these are all like helicopter uh, flyovers, trying to get the lay of the land, not only to feed us in this particular morning from this book, but also to kind of equip us, to encourage us to go feed ourselves on the grace and the truth. Um, You know, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that includes the Old Testament. And that includes books like this that sometimes are difficult to understand. And we need to do a little digging and a little work to understand the culture and the history and the situation so that we can see the relevance of these books for our lives. So that's kind of been our orientation as we've walked through these books um, over the last few months. So here we go. We are concluding uh, this morning this series, and uh, we'll be heading soon into Advent. So Pastor Tyler is going to be preaching next Sunday on Psalm 136. It's kind of just a one-off message, and then we're going to be doing a series for Advent um, beginning the end of November. All right, so if you're not there already, turn to the book of Malachi. And we won't read the whole book, but it is one of the shorter ones. Um, And so we'll read most of the book as we walk through it this morning. So, uh, yeah, let's just pray again briefly here and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in. All right. Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done You are so great, greater beyond our comprehension. You are so much greater than we ever give you credit for. Um, And yet, we do know of your greatness. We've tasted and seen your greatness, your goodness, and we praise you, we worship you. Uh, You are great and greatly to be praised. And... I pray that you would help us to see your greatness all the more this morning. Lord, help us not have small thoughts of you. I pray that our our hearts, our affections would not be dull and um, just barely responsive to you. I pray that we would be alive to you, um, that you would be real, not just an idea, not just information on a page, but uh, that we would have an encounter with the living God, that that would be true this morning, that that would be true each and every day, that we would live in the light of your reality, uh, and that who you are and what you have done would change everything for us. So we need your help now. I need your help as we study your word. Um, Would you please be with us by your spirit? giving us attentiveness, giving us ears to hear, giving us soft hearts to receive what you have to say this morning. Lord, only you can change us. And I pray that you would, and I pray that you would help us all to welcome that work and not resist it. Guard us from the evil one who wants to distract us now or distort your word. 
or just draw our attention away to other things, even in our minds right now. So come by your Spirit and do your work among us so that you can do your work through us in this city. We are not here this morning by accident, and we are not in this city at this time by accident with the neighbors you've given us, in the workplaces you plant us in, planted us in, in the families that you planted us in. We're there for a reason to reflect your grace and truth and goodness and gospel and hope and love to those around us. So help us this morning so that we can be faithful in that mission to the world this week. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there is an outline on the live stream page. The, the points will be up on the screen here. You can follow along that way. Um, so first off, just a little bit of orientation. Again, this is necessary, especially in books like this, because um, you're probably not super familiar with the history of the ancient Near Eastern world. Um, so we need to get a little bit oriented to what was going on. So where are we? The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So this book is dealing with a situation around 450 B.C., okay? So Malachi was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? So it would actually be helpful if you went and read those books. You would realize that they have a lot of um, intersection with the book of Malachi. So Malachi lived about 100 years after the return from exile. So the temple has now been built for a while, okay? Last week and the week before, we looked at Haggai and Zechariah. Zechariah. And those guys were prophesying around 520 to 516 B.C. Now it's 450 B.C., okay? And things aren't going particularly well. So the expectations have been high when they first came back to the land from exile in Babylon, but time had passed and hopes had kind of been deflated because what they expected and reality didn't exactly match up. You know, they thought God was going to, you know, just come back in power and the temple was going to be built and just enter into the glory days again. Paul House, an Old Testament commentator, he says this, about seven decades after Haggai and Zechariah exhorted the Israelites to rebuild the temple... Malachi, the last of the canon's prophets, ministered in Jerusalem. By now, the temple was functional, but worship was superficial. The people were faced with social, economic, and spiritual depression. Malachi's message confronts these problems by fastening the people's minds on theology, on who God is. This prophecy contends that post-exilic, this is after the exile, Israel will flourish only when the people are renewed by a fresh vision of Yahweh's love for them and a recommitment of their willingness to love, honor, and serve their Lord. So, yes, they were back in the land, but they're still under the shadow of a dominant foreign power. Yes, the temple had been completed, 516 B.C., but God hadn't really shown up like he had when the Solomonic temple was dedicated, you know, coming down in, in really miraculous kind of demonstrable form. So 
Did he even care? Was he still with them? Did it even matter? Does it make any difference to serve him? You know, were miracles only things of the past with, you know, Moses and Elijah and David and Solomon? Was God going to come down and dwell in a powerful way with his people? Would he deal decisively with his enemies and bring about the shalom, the peace and flourishing that he promised? So among the people, apathy and cynicism is growing. There's hypocrisy, spiritual tokenism, you know, just this perfunctory, symbolic worship. There's moral decline. They've lost touch with the reality of God, with God himself. They wonder if he's still there, if he's he cares if he's indifferent some of those things we can probably resonate with right so this book is testimony that God is not silent he is not indifferent he is not aloof he engages directly in this book in fact this book is like a dialogue it's a disputation it's back and forth with God so God says something Israel will question it and then God responds and that happens six times in this book most of the words of the book of Malachi are first person from God, obviously through Malachi. So this book is an encounter with the living God. And so Malachi brings us not only to the, book, the end of the book of the 12, you know, the 12 minor prophets, but also brings the prophets to a close, and not only the prophets, but the whole Old Testament to a close. All right, so that's a little bit of an orientation of where we are. Point number one now, this is the first disputation, the first dialogue thing that happens, uh, verses 2 to 5. And the heading here is that God's love is not in question. So the Lord says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? In other words, God says, I've loved you. The people respond with, I mean, what have you done for us lately? How have you loved us? This, this is not an innocent question asked innocently. This is a rude and disrespectful question. They're suspicious of God's love. They're doubting it. And so this res response, just think about this. All of what God has done for his people down through the ages, and they're saying, how have you loved us? We don't see much. There's this entitlement orientation to past deliverances and blessings. There's even a blindness to those things. And they also are blind to their own unfaithfulness to God. So they are actually fixating on their false perception of God's indifference rather than really looking in and seeing that they are actually the problem. So how does God answer? How have I loved you? You spoiled rotten. Like He doesn't just like backhand them, though he could. He actually answers them. It's an interesting answer. It can be a little confusing. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated or rejected. I have laid waste his hill country and left his, his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, the people that come from Esau, Edomites, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down 
and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. See, there you go. Case in point as to why we avoid the minor prophets. What in the world is that talking about? How is that an answer to the question, How have you loved us? See, it's just so confusing. We, go, we throw up our hands and we just go back to the Gospels. Easy to, easier to understand. So what he's saying here is that he has chosen his people in love and has rejected and is against his enemies. Okay, so Jacob, this chosen line, Esau, you know, was a fool. He, be, he you know, gave up his birthright and all of that and kind of the enemies of God. He represents the enemies of God. So what God is saying here is, I have been for you. I will be for my people. In fact, that's why I've been so relentless in my discipline of you. The Lord disciplines those he loves. So how have you loved us? Ever feel that way? I think we do, probably pretty frequently. But I mean, how could God answer us? How has he loved us? What more could he do for us? Sometimes we just have amnesia, spiritual amnesia. And we focus on all of our problems and we forget about all of the grace and mercy and kindness and love the Lord has showered upon us, his long-suffering and his superabundant mercy and grace. We don't think about the incarnation and the cross. We're thinking of, you know, this financial situation right now or this trouble at work or that we need to kind of like get pulled back and have a wider angle lens view think of all his very great and precious promises that are ours if you are in Christ you have forgiveness of all of your sins you are adopted as his beloved child forevermore you have peace with God you are an heir with Christ of everything. His mercies are going to be new for us every morning. So the way God answers this question, there are 1,600 years of love and faithfulness in the rearview mirror by this time in history. Is God going to become fickle and Jekyll and Hyde all of a sudden? So their suffering, their kind of deflated hopes in the moment are not a result of his failure to love. There's a different cause. God's love is not in question. God is love. His love is not on trial. I mean, sometimes, yeah, it can, in our circumstances, it's easy to lose sight of the bigger picture and we can struggle with how, how, how can you allow this to happen if you love me, but his ways are higher than our ways. We can trust him. We've seen how he's done this in the past. Like the life of Joseph or whoever. He brings beauty through the ashes of our suffering. Okay, So it's really easy to feel this way, to question God's love, to do the same thing. How have you loved us? Like, throw me a bone. Come on, God. But God's love is not on trial, folks. Like, it's not in question. So one of my seminary professors, I think it's been a few years since I've told this illustration, he, he gave this illustration. I'm not even sure when I first heard it, but um, I think it's hilarious. I don't know why he was picking on hippies, 
Um, but it's a story about some hippies in the Louvre, you know, the museum in France. So apparently there's these hippies in, in the Louvre, and they were acting not very cultured and kind of rude and disrespectful, and they're making snide comments about these great masterpieces that are on the wall, and the curator of the museum lets this go on for a little while, and he finally just gets fed up, and he comes up to these, these hippies, or you could put somebody else in there, you know, rednecks or something like that. I come from redneck territory, so I can say that. Um, he says, gentlemen, in this museum, it's not the paintings that are being tested. Do you get it? Can't really tell. Masks on, you know? <laughs> so the whole point is, if you question, critique, you know, make snide comments about these masterpieces, it's not the masterpieces that are being, you know, they're not the ones in question. It's your taste. The problem is with you. So as far as God's love is concerned, God's love is not in question. If we are responding like the Israelites at this time, the problem is actually with us. It's not with God. So how you and I feel about God and his love, you know, the roller coaster ride that it can be, our, our feelings... We should not take our feelings as gospel. You know, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. We can't take our feelings as gospel. The gospel is what we ought to take as gospel. Right? He has loved us with this everlasting love that we totally don't deserve. And no matter what happens, if we are in Christ, we are safe, we are his forever. Nothing can separate us from his, his love. He is for us and not against us. So feelings don't make good gods. God is God. Let him rule your hot heart, not your roller coaster heart rule your view of God. So that is not like in the air that we breathe in our world today where unfiltered self-expression is kind of equated with authenticity and not being fake you know, people kind of naturally say, think, operate, like no one has the right to tell me how to feel or not to feel. You know, no one can control how they feel anyways, right? So don't blame me for my reactions. Express how I feel, no matter how volatile, you know, to suppress it would be fake, right? Well, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the heart never takes the place of the head but it can and should obey it. The heart should obey the head rather than the other way around. We have these, you know, fickle emotions and then we start to bend reality to our mind becomes commandeered by our hearts. You see? So you can diagnose your emotions rather than obey them. Make sure they're in line with truth. So if you feel like God doesn't love you, well, look at his track record. Look at the incarnation. Look at the cross. How can we doubt his love? We need to instead diagnose our emotions and ask God to bring our hearts in line with the truth that we know in our heads. 
So Spurgeon said this, Beware, my dear Christian friends, of living by feeling. He that lives by feeling will be happy today and unhappy tomorrow. And if our salvation depended on our feelings, we should be lost one day and saved another, for they are as fickle as the weather and go up and down like a barometer. Aren't you glad we're not saved based on our feelings? We're saved based on Christ's work on the cross. God, if you are in Christ, if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus as your Savior, God is for you. And who can be against you? And if God is for you, nothing can separate you from his love, no matter your circumstances. So the issue is not that God has changed his mind. He does not have a fickle love. His steadfast love endures forever. It was the Israelites in this situation, in Malachi, who had been unfaithful, and so they were paying the price. His love was not fickle. His love is not fickle. Let's not let our fickle emotions trick us into believing that his love is fickle. Second dispute found in chapter 1, verse 6 to 2, verse 9. We're not going to read the whole thing, but um, most of it here. So this one's about God's honor and our offerings. So the second issue that the Lord addresses is how their offerings betrayed their hearts. And that's the case for them. We don't give the same kind of offerings. We don't, you know, sacrifice any animals. Um, but we still offer up our lives to the Lord. And so our offerings actually do betray our hearts. So they were offering sacrifices, going through the motions, but God was getting the leftovers, not their first and their best. And the problem had permeated not only the priesthood, but also the people. So look at verse 6, chapter 1, verse six, uh, 6. A son honors his father, at least he's supposed to, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests, who despise my name. Here's the, here's the dispute. But you say, how have we despised your name? God answers by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So notice God doesn't say, I'm done. I've had enough of this. I've had enough of you. Instead, he's calling them to repent. His long suffering and his mercy and his patience are intended to lead them to repentance. And it's remarkable. His mercy is even present here in the midst of their pathetic worship. So verse 9, he calls them to repentance. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? So in other words, repent and entreat his favor with fitting sacrifices. So how, how does this hit you? If, if you're going through the motions, giving token offerings of time and money and concern, 
and God confronts you like he did these people in Malachi's day, what's your heart's response? If the heart response is this, like, good grief, I'm doing the best I can. This is so wearying. Like, I'm so weary of all this. Beware. Look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations, reverenced, held in awe. So if we are giving God lame leftover sacrifices and we think that a call to genuine heart worship and giving him our first and our best, if we feel like that's terrible, wearying burden, we need the smelling salts of this passage. So they were despising the Lord with their cheap token sacrifices. Sacrifices that didn't cost them anything. Okay, if you had an animal, animal that was lame or sick, you'd kill it anyway. <laughs> so if that kind of gift would be an affront to an earthly governor, how much more inappropriate to offer something like that to God? So they were treating God as if he was less important, less worthy of honor than even a local governor. And if God is great, and he is the greatest the most glorious, the high and holy one, should he be indifferent to our indifference? No. He'd be, he'd be guilty of aiding and abetting our hypocrisy and our dishonor. He'd be just fine with belittling his name rather than hallowing his name. He's not okay with that. If he leaves us in our ho-hum toward him status quo hearts, would he be loving? No. That would be like being okay with slinging the earth off into the solar system and saying, ah, they'll be fine. Like, no, the earth needs a sun for crying out loud. Like, you're toast if the earth just gets flung out into the universe, right? So if God isn't at the center, we are toast. You see? So, so, it would be unloving of him to just let us marginalize him. He's too great. He's too good. We are too desperately in need. Like second things, other things will never care for us, satisfy us like he can and will. So does your worship, does my worship demonstrate the greatness of God? Or if an honest, objective observer of your life were to kind of, you know, get a good view of things for a month or so, would they conclude that you must worship a mini-god? Like a little pygmy god? It's not that great. 
even if we're not given, you know, prone to giving like lame duck sacrifices, we are prone to minimalism, aren't we? <laughs> to stinginess even with God. It's kind of crazy if you think about it, seeing as everything that we have comes from him. So C.S. Lewis gets in our kitchen when he writes this. At least he gets in my kitchen. Our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We approve of an income tax in principle. Okay, God, you can require certain things of me. We make our returns truthfully, but we dread a rise in the tax. We are very careful to pay no more than is necessary, and we hope, we very ardently hope, that after we have paid it, there will still be enough left to live on. We just need to guard our hearts against token sacrifices of our time and money and love and energy. Do we worship a little pygmy god or do we worship the great god of heaven and earth? So do you remember when King David foolishly conducted a census back in 2 Samuel 24? By doing so, it appears what was happening is he was placing his trust in the size of his army rather than in the Lord to take care of him and by doing so, he brought judgment down on the people. So the Lord sent a pestilence, and 70,000 people died. The spread of that pestilence stopped by the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. The prophet Gad told David to offer a sacrifice to the Lord in that place where the pestilence had stopped. So David came up to Aruna to buy his threshing floor and to offer sacrifice there. Arna offered to give David the property and also said, here's my oxen, there's the yoke, you can just break it apart, use that for your wood, have my oxen, you can have it all. Do you remember how David responded? 2 Samuel 24, 24 says this, but the king said to Arna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So we worship a great God. May we not offer him token and lame sacrifices. He owns it all. All we have is from him. It's not this minimalist Orientation, You know, how much of my time and my money and my energy and my talents and my love should I give to you? We need to put that perspective to death. It's all I have is yours. You've given it all to me. To live is Christ. Help me glorify and hallow and honor your name with all all of who I am and all that I have and all that I do. Let's live maximally for our great God and Savior. Third dispute. God's faithfulness and ours. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not God, one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he's no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why does he not accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So remember how I said Nehemiah and Ezra uh, contemporaries of Malachi? You can look actually back at Nehemiah 13 and see how the Israelites had intermarried with the pagan nations. That was prohibited. Just like it drew the heart of Solomon away from God to worship other gods when he married all these wives, the same thing was happening at the time of Malachi. So this was infidelity to God and infidelity to their wives. It was a betrayal of the covenant with God and the covenant with their wives. When you break faith with God, breaking faith with other human beings is not surprising. Love for God and neighbor hang together. You know, first commandment, second is like it. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So, God and neighbor hang together, whether in fidelity or failure. So, intermarriage, the intermarriage that was prohibited was not racial or ethnic, but spiritual. So, for instance, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, that's commended. It's a beautiful thing in God's word, even though she was from a pagan nation who worshiped false gods and were often enemies of God's people, the Moabites, okay? She was a faithful believer in Yahweh. So Boaz and Ruth were equally yoked, even though they were ethnically different. So the issue of intermarriage is not racial or ethnic. It's spiritual. So our equivalent is this. Christians are called to, by God to marry only in the Lord, like it says in 1 Corinthians 7. So Kathy Keller, you, you, you've heard the name Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York City for a long time. Um, several years ago, read this article by her, um, really wise article. It says, don't take it from me. This is the title, Reasons You Should Not Marry an Unbeliever. So they ministered in New York City, tons of young professionals, saw lots of people get married. Um, I think they were there 30 some odd years or whatever. He recently retired from that post. So in this article, she recounts how often that they've had young Christians move toward marriage to an unbeliever and they've resisted, you know, their counsel when they've been warned against it. And she explains how she'd love to give each of them the opportunity to sit down with a Christian who did just that and then later on in life realized what a bad idea it was to not trust God in that decision. And then she goes on to say that there are only three ways this arrangement can turn out. So listen to this wisdom as application of this section in Malachi. So three ways this arrangement can turn out if a Christian marries a non-Christian. First, in order to be more in sync with your spouse, the Christian will have to push Christ to the margins 
of his or her life. This may not involve actually repudiating the faith, but in matters such as devotional life, hospitality to believers, small group meetings, emergency hosting of people in need, missionary support, tithing, raising children in the faith, fellowship with other believers, those things will have to be minimized or avoided in order to preserve peace in the home. Two, alternatively, if the believer in the marriage holds on to a robust Christian life and practice, the non-believing partner will have to be marginalized. If he or she can't understand the point of Bible study and prayer, mission trips, or hospitality, then he or she can't or won't participate alongside the believing spouse in those activities. The deep unity and oneness of a marriage cannot flourish when one partner cannot fully participate in the other person's most important commitments. Third, so either the marriage experiences stress and breaks up, or it experiences stress and stays together, achieving some kind of truce that involves one spouse or the other capitulating in some areas, but which leaves both parties feeling lonely and unhappy. So, actually she goes on and says, does this sound like the kind of marriage you want? One that strangles your growth in Christ or strangles your growth as a couple or does both? Think back to that off-cited passage in 2 Corinthians 6.14 about being unequally yoked. Most of us no longer live in an agrarian culture, but try to visualize what would happen if a farmer yoked together, say, an ox and a donkey. The heavy wooden yoke designed to harness the strength of the team would be askew, as the animals are of different heights, weights, walk at different speeds, and with different gaits. The yoke, instead of harnessing the power of the team to complete the task, would rub and chafe both animals, since the load would be distributed unequally. An unequal marriage is not just unwise for the Christian, but it is also unfair to the non-Christian and will end up being a trial for both of them. So, one, one just quick qualification here. Obviously, there are plenty of scenarios where people get married and then one of the spouses becomes a Christian. And there's grace for that. Okay, this, what she's addressing here is if you are a Christian and you're heading into this and just ignoring what God is saying, that's why she's writing this wisdom. So this passage also in Malachi 2, 10 to 16 applies to us as the church in relation to the sad frequency of divorce for unwarranted reasons among Christians. Like, we just don't love each other anymore. Or we had irreconcilable differences. Okay, so I'm not speaking here of instances where, just, where divorce may be justified. Infidelity the desertion of the unbelieving spouse, cases of abuse, okay? What our text does emphasize is the fact that marriage is a sacred covenant ratified by God himself. Look at verses 14 and 15. It's clear that there's, it's not just the couple and their friends and family that are there on the day of the wedding. The Lord is witness to those vows. What God has joined together, let no one Separate. So Christian marriage is supposed to be this little scale model of God's fidelity, covenantal fidelity to his people. So how important is our fidelity to God? It's on display in the fidelity in our marriages, and we don't want to tell a lie about God's faithfulness. So fourth dispute now. Chapter 2, verse 17. God's justice and his refining fire. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? (laughs) Um, With your words. 
you know? Look at the previous verse. Case in point. Um, By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So, ooh, they're calling evil good. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So, we could kind of summarize this as, you're calling faithlessness, (laughs) faithlessness, faithfulness, and you question the faithfulness of the faithful God. Okay, look at chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's what they wanted, right? They wanted this miraculous, you know, God showing up at his temple. But given where their hearts were at, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and the purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. As in the days of old and as in former years. So where is this God of justice? Does God favor the wicked? Like, is he indifferent to the lawlessness all around us? Their cynicism is showing. They're questioning God's justice. They're putting God's patience to the test, wearying him by their just stubborn, kind of incorrigible infidelity. When is God going to show up and punish the wicked, they're saying, but they don't realize that if he does, they're in trouble. Well, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Fifth dispute, God never changes but we must. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you. So the whole point is, I haven't changed. You guys are the, (laughs) the ones who have changed. You're the ones that have departed from me and wandered. And he talks about how to return. It would be to put your money where your mouth is and trust him. We'll skip that. Look at the sixth dispute. Chapter 3, 13 to 4, 3. This is the last of the six disputes. Is it worth it to serve God? Verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So, in other words, he's saying, or they are saying, It just doesn't make any difference. You know, serve the Lord. It's all in vain. It's not worth it. So you can see that they are, again, just blind and they need to wake up. They need the smelling salts of God's grace and truth here. So the Lord responds, verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, 
when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So this fear of the Lord here, you see it in verse 3.16, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. You see it again in 4.2, you who fear my name, fearing the Lord, esteeming his name. It's the opposite of that token religiosity that characterized them previously. This is the proper response to such a great God and King. And then here's the conclusion. Chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Look back to the Mosaic covenant. Look back to the law. And then verse 5. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. This is looking ahead. Looking back, look ahead. Remember and behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So let's try to just summarize these last three points, five, six, and seven. Do you see how all of this arcs right into the New Testament? Into the glorious story of the gospel from chapter 3-1, verse 3-1 to 4-6. Where is the God of justice? Where is this great day of the Lord when he judges the wicked and brings his people into perfect peace and they go out like leaping, like calves from the stall? Well, first there's a forerunner, my messenger. And who was that messenger? Well, fast forward 400 years, Zechariah is offering incense. It's his turn on duty as a priest and an angel shows up and says that he and his wife in their old age are going to have a son and Luke 1 uh, 16 says he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared John the Baptist is the messenger He's the forerunner. And then the Lord was going to show up. And that's Jesus. They thought it was all going to come at once where the day of the Lord was just going to go boom and all of the, the you know, people of God are going to be saved and all the enemies destroyed. But the problem is their hearts really hadn't been changed. They were just fickle and stubborn over all the... What's going to change them? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Like it says in Malachi, no one, we'd all be toast. So first the Lord comes and Jesus was consumed in the fire of God's wrath so that the fire that we pass through could be a refiner's fire. So they were a sinful people and needed to be turned back, prepared for the day of the Lord. Otherwise it would only be a day of judgment. And we must also Fear the Lord, trust in him, esteem his name, not belittle it so that we are ready for the final day of the Lord. For those who are not in Christ, the end of Malachi is sobering. It's going to be a day of fiery judgment. For those in Christ, it's going to be a day 
like calves leaping from the stall. You've got to see these little videos, right? If you have any social media, you've probably seen somebody post a video of happy little goats coming out of a stall, okay? Calves are not quite as spry as goats, but the text says calves, so we're going to go with the calf. So can you play that video? Look at this guy. Okay. So in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of, you know, all the bad news, world feels like it's spinning out of control. That's your future. Like, actually, that future already broken in because God is for us. Nothing can separate us from his love. Like, we're doing way better than we deserve. We've got good news, folks. So, were it not for Jesus, the holiness of the Lord, the day of his coming would be our undoing. We would be toast. But in Christ, we can look forward to the day of the Lord like calves chomping at the bit, just ready to escape the stalls and bounce around. So we're going to close by singing, Holy is the Lord. The first few words say this, We stand and lift up our hands, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship him now. How great, how awesome is he. And together we sing, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray and we'll sing. Oh God, I pray that you would reorient us to what's true and that our emotions and affections, our hearts would be governed and guided and fired up by your truth and your grace. Your love is not in question. You never change. You are faithful. And I pray that we would see how great you are and how great is your grace. And I pray that we would respond appropriately like little calves jumping for joy out of the stall because of your kindness and love and faithfulness. Lord, please reorient us for the sake of your great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.